Hi, and welcome to Women at Warp, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. Join us as our crew of four women Star Trek fans boldly go on our bi-weekly mission to explore our favorite franchise. My name is Sue, and thanks for tuning in. With me today is my lovely co-host, Jara. Hello. Before we get into today's main topic, as usual, we have a little bit of housekeeping to do first. Our show is entirely supported by our patrons on Patreon. If you'd like to become a patron, you can do so for as little as $1 per month and get awesome rewards from thanks on social media to silly watch-along commentaries and now even some extra non-Trek content in the feed at certain levels. So if you'd like to join us at any level, every little bit helps. You can do so at patreon.com slash womenatwarp. You can also support us by leaving a rating or review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Before we get into our main topic, which is an awesome interview that Sue did with Honolly M. Culpepper, who is one of Star Trek's few women directors, and she will be the first black woman to... uh, well, she's the first woman to direct a pilot of a Star Trek series, and she was the first black woman to direct Star Trek, I believe. So um, I'm excited for that. Um, but of course, a couple a couple little pieces of, you know, news and announcements from our show um, and from the Roddenberry Podcast Network. Uh, first, if you haven't yet, uh, suggest that you take a look on your podcast feed for Daily Star Trek News, the newest podcast from our network, which is hosted by Allison Pitt. And it gives you just a, a super quick look into all the things happening in the world of Star Trek these days, which is a lot. Um, I also follow her on Instagram. Instagram on this account and every day, you know, new quotes and interviews of, you know, what are people saying about Tarantino Star Trek or the new animated series, uh, series, series, series. Um, So uh, you should uh, give that a check out. Um, Another thing that um, the Roddenberry uh, Foundation is working on is a fundraiser with Heroic Curriculum, which is a uh, nonprofit uh, that was uh, started by Chase Masterson. Chase's foundation, the Pop Culture Hero Coalition, is working with Scott Palm, who created this heroic curriculum. And it is specifically for uh, young people with disabilities and their peers to create more inclusive spaces. And there is currently a fundraiser happening to get that curriculum into schools this fall. And Uh, Currently, all summer long, the Roddenberry Foundation is donation matching dollar for dollar uh, for any donations that come in through the GoFundMe page. And the easiest way to find that is to actually go to the Mission Log Facebook page, and it will be their pinned post to find a link to that GoFundMe. Or if you go directly to GoFundMe, you can search for Heroic Curriculum, and that should come right up. Oh, last but not least, um, it's uh, a mere month or s- months and a bit away from Star Trek Las Vegas, and uh, we are very excited. Uh, both you and I, Sue, as well as Grace, are going to be there, um, along with other representatives from the Roddenberry Podcast family. So we're very excited. Um, There's going to be a network panel and as well as a Women at Work panel has been approved. Uh, So stay tuned on our social media feeds. And uh, in our next episode, we'll hopefully be able to tell you more about the specific topics, times and dates. Yeah. And we plan like last year, we plan to have more stickers to give out as well as some other things at the Roddenberry booth. 
So come on by and say hello. And we're also trying to get on the calendar a meetup for the entire Roddenberry Podcast Network so that all of your hosts will be in one place that is not the Roddenberry Monolith, but somewhere that includes wonderful beverages so that we can all uh, hang out and socialize a little bit one of the, the days of the con. Awesome. All right. Well, um, so did you want to introduce our main topic then? Yeah, so I'm so thrilled I had the opportunity to talk with Hanalee Culpepper, as Jara brought up. If you follow the show on social media, you may have noticed that this year for International Women's Day, we decided to highlight the women who have directed episodes of Star Trek. And this uh, podcast is right along those lines. So as you probably are aware, in the first 50 years of the Star Trek franchise, with more than 700 episodes, there were only six women directors. Gabrielle Beaumont, Gates McFadden, Kim Friedman, Nancy Malone, Roxanne Dawson, and Allison Liddy. With Discovery Season 1, Lee Rose became the seventh woman to direct an episode of Star Trek, and Hanalee Culpepper became the eighth woman and the first black woman to direct an episode of Star Trek. Since then, we have also had uh, Marta Cunningham join the ranks directing in Season 2 of Discovery, bringing the total to nine women who have directed Star Trek in 52 years. So... (laughs) We're getting there. (laughs) But um, kudos to these women who have managed um, to get that opportunity to carve out that space um, in, you know, a period of time that even still as as Star Trek is um, moving forward on representation and Discovery has definitely accelerated the pace of of, uh, diversity in representation behind the scenes, um, there's still some pretty significant structural barriers in Hollywood uh, for women directors and other behind the scenes professionals. Yeah, and during the interview, I believe I do say to Hanalee that uh, she's the first woman of color to direct. That is inaccurate as uh, Roxanne Dawson is Latinx, but I'd want to correct that here in that uh, she would be the second woman of color to direct for Star Trek. But she is definitely the first woman to launch a Star Trek series as she uh, just wrapped up directing actually the first episode of Star Trek Picard premiering at the end of the year. So Obviously, CBS wouldn't let us talk much about that, but she did uh, share a little bit about her her feelings about the casting crew. That's so exciting. In addition to that, we chat about her background, her uh, education, the different mentoring opportunities, the different programs that she went through, how she got into Star Trek, the kinds of projects she picks, all sorts of different things in this interview. So I hope you find it enjoyable. So, Hanalee, thank you so much for joining me today to talk some Star Trek and some other stuff. So happy to be here. And so um, let's start at, at the beginning. I mean, according to, to Wikipedia, your undergraduate degree is in economics and French. Uh, how did you get into the TV and film industry? Yes, well, um, I wanted to be a director for my senior year of high school, but I was thinking of doing advertising. So I went to Lake Forest College because it's near Chicago. I had this completely wrong idea that um, I would get a job at an advertising agency and direct their commercial. So it's, it's the reason why 
Uh, mm-hmm. As soon as you feel like you know what you want to do, you should get a mentor who's in the business to really guide you on what the correct ways to do things. Um, so I went to Lake Forest College and um, I was majoring in business in order to get into advertising. And my first economics class was so wonderful. I loved it. And so I switched my major, major to economics. And, um, and I wanted to go do a semester in Paris. So that's why I ended up double majoring in economics and French. And I did very well at it that I got a fellowship to get a PhD in economics from University of California, Riverside. And while I was in that program, I was like, wait a minute, what's happened? I wanted to do TV and film and I've gone down a completely different path. And um, I dropped out of the program and transferred to USC and, and um, you know, kind of went on to pursue the ultimate goal. So that's kind of how, I, that's kind of why there's the anomaly of economics and French in my <laughs> uh, background. <laughs> And is it correct that you originally were interested in in acting, not directing? Yes, yes. Like most of my growing up life, I wanted to be an actor. And I think that's just because as a kid, that's what you know, that's what you see. Like you don't see the Uh directors, you know, Um, you see actors. So um, in high school, I kept auditioning to get into plays and I was never, ever selected. And so by senior year, I took this directing elective. And I only took it because you have to act in another person's play. So it was my way of guaranteeing myself an acting role. <laughs> and that's where I got the directing bug. And also realized that I really did not like acting. I prefer to be on the other side of the camera. Awesome. So after that, uh, you were selected for the American Film Institute's directing workshop for women. Can you talk about that experience? Sure. Um, when you say after that, it makes it sound like it was immediately. Yes. <laughs> yeah. And there was, there was many years <laughs> in between. Um, it was, yeah, way after that. But yeah, that's a, uh, uh, that is a, a credible program. What was great about it is that it's not for people who are just out of film school or just trying to break into the the industry is for women who work in the industry for at least five years. And um, at the time that I did it, it was for women who have, who really have always wanted to direct, but maybe have never tried. Um, it's changed a little bit now in that you're required to have directed at least one thing. Um, when I applied, I had directed my first short. Um, so you could have, directed, I think as long as you hadn't directed a feature, you are eligible to um, apply. And so it's great because it gives you a chance, especially for the women who haven't done this at all. Because um, even though you have to now know that you're required to direct something, it doesn't like have to be a major production. You can just even go out with your iPhone and shoot something quickly to apply for the program. So it really gives you a chance to sit in that director's seat, really embrace it and own it and learn from it and make mistakes in a very uh, supportive environment. And it's great. Some women go through the program and decide they don't want to be directors. And some go through it and feel inspired. And some go through it and feel like, yes, I kind of know, I do know what I'm doing. And it gets a little bit, it gets solidified, the the skills and stuff that you've been learning, especially for someone like me who learned most of it through um, through doing, working on projects in, in various positions, you know, PA, GRIP. Uh, I think I've done every position except for being gaffer 
Um, so it's a great way to kind of solidify your experiences. And uh, yes, through that program, I made my second short film, A Single Rose, which went on to do really good things for me and helped get my first feature. And before your first feature, you worked on several short films and independent films. Is that right? Yes, that's right. So um, I did my first short, The Wedding Dress, before the AFI program. <laughs> and I did a single rose for the AFI program. And then um, my producing partner and I had this idea for a spoof of Sex in the City called Six in the City with six-year-olds on the playground. <laughs> and once they announced they were ending the show, we were like, oh my goodness, we have to do this right now. So we like hurried up and made it. And so I've actually had a single rose, which is this this kind of luscious period drama playing on the film festival circuit at the same time as Six in the City, which was this, um, you know, a, a, a comedy with kids. And um, I went on and did, um, I did, I think, another two or three more shorts and a bunch of other PSAs. But it was really like the combination of those two playing the festival circuit at the same time that kind of led to, um, you know, the breaks because uh, Single Rose got me into the Berlin Talent Campus. And through that, I met Rebecca Sunshine. I optioned her script with then. Um, together, we changed it because it was a period piece. And I knew I couldn't afford that. And we made it present day. And then um, through all my work with the group Coffee Makers Alliance, I had a great relationship with Jock and Liam. And they liked the script, so they took it to Bigfoot, which was a company they had a relationship with that was looking to greenlight genre stuff. And so they um, greenlighted it. And uh, their question is, why should Honolulu direct it? And in addition to it being, well, I control the property, so you can't have a property without me. <laughs> um, it was, you know, they were able to look at a single rose and they were able to look at Six in the City and see that, okay, she can work with kids because the stars are within our two nine-year-olds. And she can make, you know, something that's really beautiful. And so that's why they allowed to let me um, direct my the feature. That's fantastic. So that versatility in, in the short films was really an asset. Right. So then how did you get from work in, in film into television? Yes. Lifetime ended up optioning um, within to and it aired on their channel for some years. Um, and it did well, and they really, really liked it. So they introduced me to these producers who were doing a, a, um, another Lifetime thriller and needed a director. And I went on to do three different features with those producers. And basically, I had then had enough material in my reel to craft a reel for, for television. Um, and I got into NBC's diversity program. And interestingly, I was picked to, to, to shadow on parenthood, and they gave me a shot. Now, in the meantime, when they gave me a shot, they offered me an episode. In the meantime, through all these years, I had also shadowed on 12 different shows. I did a lot of shadowing independently. Mm-hmm. And so there was a show that I had shadowed on um, already twice. And so I was able to take, to let them know that NBC was giving me a shot and they were able to take that back to the CW and say, if NBC's giving her a shot, then let's give her a shot. And that led to me getting 90210. So it was, it was that I had, um, that I had the material that I could craft it to, to 
be the way it needed to be. This is one thing that's one thing that I always urge people to do. Um, if you can create a reel that can work for a, a drama job or one that can work for a thriller job or one that can work for a you know a, a family family job, you know, try to find the things in your reel that that will make it work for those various things instead of having just one reel that goes out that makes people see you one way. Of course, like don't do this if you actually hate working on thrillers and don't <laughs> don't go after thriller dogs. But um I, I think that that was one thing that was very helpful. And then the other thing is just the going into the meetings people when you've done features, they're nervous if you can actually handle a television schedule um, and a television budget. And so I came from the feature world where these were all low budget features and we still had major visual effects, major stunts, major stars, and we had, you know, no time. So I was always able to really emphasize that in meetings that, no, I've done projects that have had, you know, little budget and no time. I'm used to working fast and trying to get something that still looks cinematic. That's another thing I encourage when people are trying to make the switch from the feature world to the TV world, that you really emphasize that you can uh, work within the schedule and the budget. And also that you emphasize that you're a collaborator because sometimes people get nervous with feature directors that you're used to being the, the, the king of the kingdom and you're used to everything going your way and, and whatever you want goes. And with TV, that's not the case. Is there, uh, you know, I'm not from the, the production world. Is, is there interaction between directors of multiple episodes on a TV show? Very little. Um, so basically when you're shooting, there's another director prepping. Mm -hmm. And at some point you do try to meet up and talk and compare notes and stuff. Um, or you can call a director that's been on a show already. And if you, you know, like if I get a job, I may call a director that I know who's done it and ask him or her what's the scoop. But yeah. otherwise, there's not. Like you're so busy in your edit, and, and one's busy in the edit, one's busy shooting, one is busy prepping, that there's not a lot of time to interact unless you really make an effort and go out and have drinks or dinner one night. The only The only exception would be um, and this has happened a couple of times where my episode may end right where the other one picks up or we share a set. So like with, with Star Trek Discovery, we both shared a set, my episode and next episode on ESOF 4. And so when we're designing the sets and what we need, then we're talking to each other to make sure, you know, that things fit both of our needs for our episodes. So then when you're coming on to a show for the first time, it's really up to you to do the research to make sure you're getting the, the right feel and the right visual effect, the tone for the show? Yes, and I'm, I, I would say that that's something that every director should probably does until I've been finding out there's actually a lot of directors who don't, and I find that completely, completely shocking wow. that you would walk onto the set of, you know, walk into your first day of prep and not know anything about your show. But yes, I try to watch as many episodes as I can um, to really, so it becomes more instinct, you know, more just gut decisions on what's the right thing to do. Because anything that happens, any, you know, you can have a million ways of doing one thing, but 
the only way to get it kind of entrenched in my head that what's the way of this show is to watch as much as I can. And if it's a show that doesn't have anything, or if I'm later in the new season and the new episodes haven't aired, then I'll try to read the scripts to fill in the blanks between whatever was the last thing on the air and my episodes. If it's a completely new show, mm -hmm. I ask the showrunners to give me a list of movies or shows that they feel tonally it's what they're going for and, and the look is what they're going for. Are there certain shows or films that you watch to to get inspiration or does that vary based on whatever project you're working on at the time? Yeah, for me that often varies, especially in the features. Um, as far as features as inspiration, it really varies on what I'm working on and what I feel um, is the matches the tone or look that I'm kind of going for and then I can share that with the, the DP. With TV, I, I am forever inspired by Handmaid's Tale and mm -hmm. Killing Eve. And I've just been watching Sorry for Your Loss, and it's excellent as well. Um, so those are some of my favorites, Mr. Robot. But again, it really depends on the project because the style of and the framing of Mr. Robot is not right for any story. <laughs> <laughs> when you're considering projects or, or something, or, or going out for a project, what what is it that draws you to that? Is it the story or characters? Mm-hmm. Um, are you TV, film, or either one? Uh, either, both. <laughs> okay. Um, with TV, um, with TV, it's we're kind of really evaluating each project in the lens of if it will help with the ultimate career goals. And so um, we've been really focusing on um, more caliber projects, whether they be on network streaming or premium cable. Um, and so that's part of the determining factor. I have kids, so part of it is if I'm going to be away from home for this project, is it one that I really love and believe in? You know, basically, I'm, I'm in a phase of not taking jobs for a paycheck, mm -hmm. at least right not right now, maybe in a couple of years. <laughs> Although that's um, just really trying to pick the shows that I feel are somehow going to help me with my craft or are leading to um, other goals. Um, and then other than that, you know, with features, of course, I'm reading it and it's like, okay, do I love these characters? Is this story one I want to tell? You know, it's going to take up a year and a half, two years of your life. It's going to take away from better paying TV jobs. Um, so I have to really love the story. And also I feel like I need to read it and visually start to be inspired just by the writing on the on the page of how I want to do this. And, and if I don't feel inspired by it, then I then I pass on it. So then how did you get involved with Star Trek? With Star Trek, the producing director, Olatunde, uh, knew my work from, I think, Sleepy Hollow. I met him once in Atlanta when I was prepping and he was shooting. <laughs> Go back to you asked how, did, how much did the directors interact with each other. So I met him then, and um, we were in apartments right above each other. So I actually saw him a couple of times getting ready for when we were going to work. And he just, he really 
liked what I did. And so he called my agents and wanted to see if I was available to do it. And with Star Trek, because I had loved it since I was a kid, well, I guess not really a kid kid. I, I loved it since the next generation. So I was a little bit older than a kid, but still very young. And um, so I just jumped at the chance to do a Star Trek. And I, that was that was a no-brainer. I didn't even read the script or anything. <laughs> <laughs> well, at the time that your first episode aired, uh, and, you know, in over 50 years of Star Trek, you were just the eighth woman and the very first woman of color to direct an episode of Star Trek. Were you aware of that at the time? And like, what are what are your thoughts on that over Trek's 50-year history? I was not aware of it at the time. I was not aware of it until uh, Trek.fm was interviewing me for their podcast and they brought it up. And, um, and then I went and tried to look that up to see if it was true. And I was absolutely surprised by it. And I um, guess my thoughts on it is that I know how this industry was and how it works and, you know, it was easier to give jobs to people who the producers knew and who they worked with before. And I think that it doesn't, it's, I, I can't speak for the heads of the people who are hiring over those 50 years, but um, sometimes I don't think it's, it's a conscious choice. It just kind of happens as you go through and get the same groups of people the same list of directors are proposed to you every year or the people you know who've done a good job before so you know you can trust them with it. And the next thing you know, 50 years has gone by. So I, I have to say, though, I'm just very impressed with Star Trek and how they are making a very, very conscious effort to diversify both in front of the lens and, and behind the lens. And it, when you think about at least when you think about Star Trek behind them, I mean, in front of the lens, it was always diverse, which is why I don't think it was a conscious choice to not be diverse behind the lens. It seems like not just Star Trek, but a lot of television right now, especially genre television, is really trying to do a better job with, with diversity throughout. Is there anything yeah. that that you think that, Star Trek and other shows can or should do to address this kind of imbalance behind the scenes? Or do you think that they're, they're on the right track at this point? I feel like Star Trek is on the right track. And as long as they continue to make the efforts, I, I feel like just for all shows, it's really just a matter of realizing that there is a lot of talented women and people of color out there. And if we can get, if we, if you can meet these people, you'll, they'll impress you and you'll want to hire them as well. And so the more that these, the people in charge of not just Star Trek, but any show can at least take the meetings to meet these people, I think that we'll find that diversity increases more and more, both behind and in front of the scenes. Um, but I do think that Star Trek has been doing a really good job and I applaud them for that. And, um, you know, you can always just, just keep doing what you're doing. Keep hiring women, keep hiring people of color, um, keep looking at roles and, and, and not seeing them as one way, seeing them as, you know, they could be anything. And it's great. I love this time that we're in. A lot of women directors that I know are, who've been working, working so hard of it for years are finally getting their breaks. And then they go right on and continue to make 
get more and more jobs. And that's, to me, all of a, a sign, not just that people are giving them the chance, but that, that the, these women and these people of color deserved it in the first place because they do a great job and they get, they get hired back and they get you know, brought on to other projects. And um, so it's a wonderful time that we're in. And I hope that it stays that way and that people realize that it's not that anyone's losing a job. I think it's just that kind of the, the, the cream of the crop is filtering through. <laughs> well, you mentioned earlier about the, the shooting schedule on TV. And we've heard a lot about that from Star Trek actors over the years about how tight the schedule is and how long the days are. What is it like for you as a director from the time you mm-hmm. start working on an episode until you're you're done with editing? Mm-hmm. Uh, well, Discovery has a 10-day prep and 10-day shoot schedule. And so you jump in and you're right into it working with your storyboard artist and figuring things out. I mean, fortunately, uh, a lot of the sets are made. So I don't know what it's going to be like in season three. Now that they've jumped forward <laughs> to the future. <laughs> I guess we're going to have a lot new sets, except for Discovery itself. But, um, you know, you immediately are trying, and if, if you do have new sets, then um, they usually have the virtual reality thing set up. So you can start doing your blocking and things like that. You really kind of have to just jump right into it. There are a lot of things that need lead time, props to be built, costumes to be made. We don't have any time to, you know, mess around. Uh, and that's kind of the case with most TV. Most TV you get in and it's either a seven or an eight day prep, and then a seven, eight, sometimes nine, 10 day shoot. And you also have locations. One thing with Star Trek is a lot of the the episodes did not have locations. Um, we did have some in my last one, and in some in last season they probably had more than usual. So you have to like immediately be ready to start jumping in the van, finding your locations, figuring out what works, and 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 the sooner you can lock in locations, the better because then you can go back and really block them. Obviously, you want to find a location that works and that's right, but the sooner you can make that decision, the better for everybody. And so it's just fast, fast, fast. But here's like the, the interesting thing about Star Trek is, you know, I've done shows that are, move super quickly, like Shooter, and then there's Star Trek, which moves quickly and certainly much faster than a feature, but it's slower than other shows. So I remember one day, my first season of Star Trek, we had um, two scenes that day, and they're both two-handers. Two-handers mean that they're just two actors. Mm-hmm. And we had 12 hours allotted to shoot them. And I was like, God, certainly we can beat this. Like, this should take me six and a half, you know, hours or so. Because usually a two-hander scene, you can knock out in two hours, two and a half hours. Mm-hmm. Um, or even sooner than that on some shows, an hour and a half. Um, but it actually took 12 hours. And so that was kind of a learning thing for me. Um, to see how, especially when you have these new gigantic sets and the time to light them and everything. Uh, so Star Trek can move a little slower than <laughs> than some shows, but it still moves, it, it moves quickly though. Is there a reason that it, it took so long? Is it the the makeup or the CGI or anything playing into that? Or is it just the way that the show is done? 
I think it's just a combination of the way it's shot, the style style of it, and mm-hmm. the lighting. These brand new these brand new sets, you know, that a really really big set. And that's why, if it had been a set that we've been on before, then I'm sure we could have shot it more quickly. So then, what's it like when you're working with so many CGI elements? Let's put it this way. I wouldn't say I love working with all the CGI elements. <laughs> I really prefer when an actor can interact with an actor and not, I mean, I'm just thinking about my other shows too, and not interact with a tennis ball or, you know, or act to nothing in the case that they have to do when they're acting to themselves or certain setups, they have to act to no, to no one there and just remember what they did. Um, it's... Um, there's challenges to all, to everything, you know, also making sure people, the more that this stuff is pre-visualized so that everyone knows what it's going to look like, where it's going to be, how tall and all that stuff, the easier it is for everybody. And so part of your prep is just to get as many of those uh, elements as close to what they're going to be or close, as close to their pre-visual um, version as they can get so you can tell the actors these things and, and, and use their imaginations in the right way. Um, and so, you know, it gets a little exhausting <laughs> sometimes. But then it, it's also, like, very, very cool when you um, then see everything put together and it works and it looks great. And I was just at this, uh, at Cinegear yesterday and there was a film called uh, Min, Min, Minyo, Minyo, I think it is, which I hadn't heard of, but I guess caused a little bit of a stir. And um, because they basically shot the whole movie in their apartment, mm. and there's a ton of visual effects, so many visual effects that you wouldn't even know that they were visual effects. And they talked about how the actor walked in, they were like, the actor was like, what the heck have I gotten myself into? And then you look at this, it's a 30 minute short that's being turned into their feature and it's amazing. And again, it's because like as much as you can know ahead of time that this is what it's going to be and you can share that, the better it just all is in the long run. And uh, so it's a cool short for anyone to check out who's interested out there and something that is majority visual effects and you can't even tell. Sorry, I got sidetracked. <laughs> <laughs> no, not at all. When you're when you're working with that, when you're talking about like the pre-visualization, how much control do you have over that? Like, do you get to to express what you want it to look like, or are you just having to work with what what is provided? It's kind of a combo platter. The good thing with Star Trek that I love is in all the um, pure visual effects sequences. You work with the storyboard, storyboard artist, and then that gets given to the VFX team, and then they pre-visit based on that. Um, some things, though, are already in the works because these things take so long. So if there is a new ship, then it's probably been designed and it, before you even come on board, and so then you are, you know, give, you're given that element and that you have to use that element. Sometimes there's time for some changes, especially as their story changes, they may they need, may need to be changed to some elements, and then some elements have not been designed, and they get designed as you are working with the VFX team and the storyboard artist. So it really is a combination platter, but I do feel like Star Trek has been one of the best at whatever I storyboard, I then see come to life on the screen. 
So how is directing for Star Trek different from working on other genre shows like the CW superhero lineup or Grimm or even Sleepy Hollow? I think the only difference really is that there's a little bit more time Hmm. because those are all done in the um, seven-day prep, eight-day shoot model. Mm -hmm. Um, I think Gotham and The Flash extended a little bit to be nine-day shoots. Gotham, I think, became a 10-day shoot at one point. But the prep is all the same. So that's one thing that's uh, a little different and nice about it. Um, otherwise you come in and it's, and there's, that's just the way of the TV world and it's the same in any show. Um, and whatever's, what's different, it's just the personalities who are behind them and how collaborative they are and what you, what you're seeing when you're reading the script. And if you feel like some things aren't making sense or if you come up with ideas for what's better, people's receptiveness are different on different shows. But otherwise, it's the same. You know, there's a lot of working with the VFX team ahead of time, the storyboard team ahead of time, the stunt coordinator ahead of time to work out all these things. Uh, Gotham has a lot more locations as does The Flash instead of just being on set because they're on Earth. (laughs) Or not on Earth, but, you know, they're in there at least as far as people go. Well, actually, no, that one was on Earth, too. But, you know, I mean, they're on the planet and not in space. Uh, so that's kind of, that's different and that's liberating. It's nice to be, to go on location a lot. So I have read that you're also a big Star Wars fan. Mm-hmm. And that is very welcome here. Uh, I'm just wondering, why do you think that these science fiction franchises have lasted so long and continue to gain fans? I think that part of it is that they were so groundbreaking when we first saw them <laughs> and just really, uh, you know, I, I can uh, to me, it's like the first time I saw the matrix and you just saw this, you were immersed in this completely new world. And, you know, it was just, they have lead characters that you loved and rooted for and just stuck by through, through, uh, you know, movie after movie, I think it's that they, it's their way of looking at our world and presenting it to us through a safe lens. So it gives them a, allows them to comment on our society in a way that is um, palatable to all. I think that's one reason why. And I think that there's the kid in of us that, I mean, we all want to go into space. <laughs> I really wonder if there's any one person out there who hasn't had that childhood dream of going into space. <laughs> and uh, some get to do it. They become astronauts. They're, they're smart enough to, to do it. And then there's those of us who will never get our feet off of, you know, the ground other than getting an airplane. <laughs> so um, I think then that this fulfills that childhood fantasy part of us all who just are fascinated with with space and what's out there. And I almost wonder until it's scientifically proven that there is no other life out there or it's scientifically proven that there is because they come to visit us or something. I think until that great mystery is solved, these type of movies, especially the ones that do them well, like Star Trek and Star Wars have done, will, will 
continue to be popular. So I have to say it. I know that you are directing the premiere episode of the new Picard series. I know you can't tell us any detail about it, um, but can you tell us anything about the experience on the set? Uh, I can say that that um, it's been a wonderful, wonderful experience and that everybody is, I think everybody on this show is as excited as I am to be doing Picard. I think we all love, oh, actually, wait, I know there's one person who hadn't seen The Next Generation <laughs> on the show. So otherwise, everybody else saw it, loved it. We're all like little kids running around. Um, it, so, it, you know, it is not without its challenges, but it's been an excellent experience for, for me and hopefully for everyone else involved. And we're really proud of what we're creating. I think the audience is going to love it. We're very excited for it. <laughs> <laughs> So, Hanali, I want to thank you so much for your time today. Uh, if our listeners want to to follow you on the internet, is there a, a good place to do that? Are you on Twitter, Instagram? Yes, um, I'm on Twitter. Um, wait, I think I'm, yeah, I'm at Twitter <laughs> at, at Hillview798. That's my uh, production company. So, at H-I-L-L-V-I-E-W-798. And then um, I'm on Instagram under my name, Hanalee Culpepper. Um, and if it's ever hard to find, you can always get it through my website, which is HanaleeCulpepper.com, or you can even put in Hillview798.com. Um, and then I, I have a Facebook page that people can follow. Uh, if they find my Facebook uh, personal page and they ask me friends, I, I can tell you now I will not accept. <laughs> I only do the rule of if I met you in person then I'll let you be a friend on Facebook but if they find the page the, the actual fan page then they're welcome to follow me and, and message me through that and everything that is a very good rule <laughs> <laughs> Hanalee thank you so so much I'm so happy we were able to do this today yeah my pleasure and thank you again for asking all right that was really interesting, Sue. I'm glad that uh, we had the opportunity to chat with Hanalee, and I am so excited to see what her work on Star Trek Picard is like. Yeah, I think we're all sort of on the edge of our seat waiting for, I think it's late December now is the, the premiere date that we have, and hopefully we'll be able to chat with her again once the episodes have aired so we can actually talk details about them. Absolutely. And uh, just wanted to let listeners know that we are planning on doing uh, episode one Star Trek's women directors more broadly, as uh, we mentioned, there are only a handful of them. Um, and uh, we want to highlight their work and their contributions to the series. And uh, so that will be coming at a later date. Yep. And that does it for today's episode. If you'd like to reach out to the show, you can do so on Twitter or Facebook or Instagram at Women at Warp. You can reach us by email at crew at womenatwarp.com. And for more from the Roddenberry Podcast Network, visit podcasts.roddenberry.com. Jara, where can people find you on the internet? You can find me on Twitter at Jara Penguin, that's J-A-R-R-A-H Penguin, or at trekkiefeminist.com. 
And you can find me on Twitter at Spaltor. That's S-P-A-L-T-O-R. And the first weekend of August, you can find us both at the Rio in Las Vegas. Yes. See you there. And thanks so much for listening. Thank <laughs> you.